1988, Marvel Comics X-Men Universe combined to tell the fall of the mutants, a crossover event built around three major devastating separate events spanning the X-Men, X-Factor, and the New Mutants. Fall of the Mutants is the follow-up to Mutant Massacre and part of the build to 1989's Inferno, with some of the stranger and least discussed ideas and beats from the Chris Claremont era of X-Men. Today I'll answer, what are the themes of Fall of the Mutants and what impact do they have on the X-Men as of today? As of the first major apocalypse story, what does Fall of the Mutants establish about the longtime ex-villain? And will we see elements from the Stranger era of late period Claremont resurface in modern X-Men? Hey everybody, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. You are listening to Kraken Krakoa. If you like the Comic Book Herald YouTube channel or Kraken Krakoa, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing. You can find full X-Men and Fall of the Mutants reading order over on ComicBookHerald.com. Spoilers for discussed comics will follow, including some modern day stuff in the Dawn of X. I won't spoil too heavily if you're just here for the old classic Fall of the Mutants, but I will be talking about some theories and ideas. As a whole, Fall of the Mutants is interesting because the event is based on a thematic connection rather than a directly shared story. As the title suggests, each mutant team, X-Factor, the Uncanny X-Men, and the New Mutants, faces a dramatic existential threat to the core of their existence. Beyond that even, the mutants' teams are very directly conf confronting the threat of human versus mutant bigotry as America's Mutant Registration Act takes off in the Marvel Universe. The MRA is introduced to Marvel as the Mutant Control Act in the Days of Future Past timeline in Uncanny X-Men 141-142. to 142. But it's here that we see the act accepted as law in the United States in Earth-616. Indeed, Mystique and the former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants introduction as a U.S. government super team known as Freedom Force forms under the cloud of the MRA, as does X-Factor, so the era of mandatory mutant registration is very much in progress for X-Men comics published beyond 85. Apocalypse here is vowing to save mutant kind, contrasted against an image of Ronald Reagan in a big ol' American cowboy hat, signing the Mutant Registration Act, forcing mutants to register their powers as deadly weapons. X-Factor is the most straightforward of the three arcs, with Cyclops, Jean Grey, Beast, and Iceman taking on a fully realized and revealed apocalypse, and his four horsemen of death as they raise parts of Manhattan, New York. X-Factor's Fall of the Mutants issues are the most dialogue and exposition readers had seen from Apocalypse to this point in Marvel Comics history, as the mutant fully supervillain monologues his way to an imprisoned X-Factor. Apocalypse very much wants the longtime X-Men to join his cause for mutant superiority, similar in that regard to Magneto, but with centuries of history and long-term planning to his name. Obviously, given what we know about the Krakoa-era alliances of the X-Men, Apocalypse's promise that Cyclops and company will join him in time is quite prophetic, if unintentionally so. At every turn, Apocalypse proves himself the master strategist, literally laughing at X-Factor's attempts to foil his plans as they smash his ship, gloriously named Ship, and set off the protocols he engineered to destroy Manhattan. These origins of Apocalypse, with Apocalypse you know, espousing the virtues of survival of the fittest as his mantra, and his presence as a mutant deity across centuries of civilizations, are very intriguing in light of the developments on Apocalypse from Ten of Swords, the ongoing, as I record this, X-Men event. There's so much to Apocalypse as this character through the ages that gets established in these pages. Indeed, when I think about Apocalypse's origins and what we really know about his formation, I tend to think first of the Simonson's X-Factor issues, again from Louis and Walt Simonson here, the husband-wife creative team, on Fall of the Mutants. It's very interesting to, to consider Apocalypse in this era. Apocalypse's major reveal for X-Factor is the not-at-all-surprising, even-in-the-moment, turn that Warren Worthington did not die 
in his apparent suicide a few issues earlier. For the record, it's here revealed to be yet another plot from the Wright's sinister leader, Cameron Hodge, and not an actual suicide attempt by Warren, but was instead rescued and turned into the Archangel of Death. Back in Mutant Massacre, one of the major ramifications is that Warren's wings were mutilated and then amputated, leaving him more or less without his mutant gifts. Warren retains much of his memory, increasingly so as the story progresses, and upgrades to a killer Walt Simonson design with the iconic blue and purple suit and metal-tipped wing blades, but for my money, it's the best transformation that we've seen for the character of Warren Worthington and Angel uh, in the character's history, and it's going to lead to a lot of like interesting Angel stories from here on through into the 2010s, you know, considering we get the likes of the Dark Angel saga, that formation uh, all, all starts here in the pages of X-Factor. Somewhat surprisingly, Warren begins freeing himself from Apocalypse's grift by the end of the three-issue arc, after Warren appears to have killed a clear snowman duplicate of Iceman. This begins the process of a transformed Warren Worthington battling the Apocalypse influence of his Archangel of Death personality and his own Xavier School's beginnings. Again, it's the best development the character has seen for my money, and an interesting turn for X-Factor as well, where Warren separates himself from the team, but of course, you know, he's still going to be bouncing around these pages, and the Simonsons are going to have a hand in his formation, until we kind of get to the 90s era of X-Men when the character kind of really frees himself from Apocalypse's grip and becomes something else entirely. So it is definitely, I think, and, and two, we, we cement, and I don't want to go into too much X-Factor detail here, but a new direction for X-Factor really comes out of Fall of the Mutants where they get away from sort of the editorial mandates of the team needing to pretend to be this mutant hunting team and get to kind of be the original X-Men again. In another series, in Uncanny X-Men, the, the, you know, again, there's three kind of thematically connected uh, series here. We have Uncanny X-Men 225 to 227. We have writer Chris Claremont, artist Mark Silvestri, Dan Green, Tom Warzakowski, Glennis Oliver, and Anne Nesenti as the creative unit. And the lineup of this era of X-Men is very interesting to me. We have Shadowcap, Wolverine, Longshot, Storm, Rogue, Psylocke, Dazzler, and Havoc. Five out of eight women, which is no small thing, especially in this era of Marvel Comics. We're seven years removed from the Dark Phoenix saga, in X-Men, and really since 86's Mutant Massacre, the X lineup is far from that stable rotation of all new, all different X-Men we see kick off the Claremont era in 1976. It's a more variable, less centralized X-Men lineup, and as readers, it feels increasingly essential to be following along with all the rotations and stories across miniseries and core titles, which of course you can do via Comic Book Herald's Claremont era X-Men reading order. The true villain of Uncanny X-Men is revealed on a cosmic scale as the uh, cosmic scale as the form of Naze, the one-time Cheyenne shaman and ally to Forge, repurposed now by the spirit of the mysterious adversary, a force for chaos in the universe pitted against Lady Roma from the world of Captain Britain in a universal game of chess. It's order versus chaos. Prior to the fall of the mutants, Naze manipulates Forge and Storm to allow for the dimensional access the adversary needs and locks Forge and Storm in his own reality outside of the Earth 616 we know. All the chaos that ensues in this story is his doing as the adversary attempts to completely dominate Lady Roma and see chaos reign. Fun fact, Naze is an homage to Forge's real friend before he was possessed by the adversary, is the name of Forge and Aurora's baby in a future reality seen in the pages of the 2000s New Mutants Nimrod story arc written by Yost and Kyle. The first dominator to fall in the X-Men story is a fight with Freedom Force, the former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants roster helmed by Mystique, now working in tandem with the U.S. government to enforce the Mutant Registration Act. I find Freedom Force mutants, Mystique, and Destiny in particular really fascinating during this time period. They they have crossover not only in the pages of X-Men, but we see them as sort of a government you know institution in the pages of Captain America as well during the Mark Grunewald written uh, The Choice Arc, where we get you know the introduction of U.S. agent during this time period. So Freedom Force, Mystique's 
Brotherhood, becoming this arm of government is a really interesting era that I think is worth digging into in a fair amount more detail, frankly, um, as in a future, you know, maybe cracking Krakoa. Freedom Force here, they inflict some serious damage on the X-Men, starting with Blob launching a butt bounce on Wolverine and leaving him in the dark abyss where angels fear to tread. From there, Spiral, perhaps the biggest wild card of the Freedom Force bunch given her Mojoverse origins, uses her mysterious abilities to stab Destiny's dope mask onto Dazzler's face, leaving Allison Blair trapped behind a horrifying sightless mask knife appearance that puts 90% of Halloween costumes to absolute shame. Like, Dazzler is just straight up trapped with a knife through her head and mask for the rest of this story until literally the very end. It's pretty wild. As is the case post-House and Powers of X, Destiny's every utterance here is weighted pretty heavily in my mind, and in this stretch, Destiny's completely overwhelmed by the impending chaos and death that she foresees. There's a particularly interesting bit of dialogue in retrospect, with Destiny unable to see outcomes as clearly, you know, that she usually can. She states here, Timelines tangling, twisting, tearing, fabric of reality fraying rent asunder. It's interesting to me how thoroughly the adversary can cloud Destiny's vision, you know, her mutant ability to see the future. This feels like a potential out for Professor X and Moira to appease Mystique and bring Destiny back. Not necessarily employing the adversary, but are there cosmic forces that can cloud the timelines, you know, that can kind of cloud and create this chaos that would allow you to have Destiny back and, and get Mystique off your back, right? Because clearly she's going to lash out if they don't bring her wife back um, in the pages of current Dawn of X. X-Men, but could you bring her back where you're just clouding her vision, right? And yes, that'd be a little mysterious, but she'd be back. There's a really interesting moment here, too, with Destiny, where she encounters Colossus, Lady Roma's ace in the hole, and tells him, none of the timelines leading to this place had you in them. She is then again overwhelmed with unending chaos in the end of all things. Likewise, Irene views the end of the X-Men as an absolute certainty. This is interesting to me because, again, Lady Roma's actions from what I presume to be Otherworld, the placement of Colossus, and later the resurrection of of the X-Men in this Fall of the Mutant story arc, they all fall outside Destiny's precognitive abilities. So there is a cosmic scale of action that Destiny cannot foresee. Again, I find this particularly interesting. What are her limits? What doesn't she know as we consider, you know, her power and her, her sort of prophetic visions relevance in the pages of the House of X and Dawn of X era X-Men, okay? And I do wonder too, like, could Mystique and Destiny live happily ever after in the world of Otherworld, for example, where Destiny's prophetic visions might be clouded. Maybe there's an out there for the mutants as well. So back in Fall of the Mutants, the adversary unleashes temporal chaos on Dallas, Texas, and the X-Men and Freedom Force agree to stop fighting long enough to try and figure out how the heck to stop the chaos that threatens to overtake their home reality. Tonally, Claremont and Mark Silvestri's work continues to reflect the fear and hate of ignorant men as a modern group of Texans open fire on the atemporal Native Americans who are thrust force into this timeline by the adversary, and this vicious assault happens you know, purely on racial prejudice and assumptions. If the mutant metaphor is not already clear in all things, the feared and hated nature of mutant kind here, which is very heavy in these pages intentionally. So in Fall of the Mutants, we do get the line here that he came to us in friendship, Stony. Sometimes you wonder, you know, do we even deserve to be saved? It's a fair question when you see hate like that. A clear connecting thread between X-Factor and X-Men is that both teams have more opportunities with media to showcase mutant allies than really ever before. Apocalypse's plan is to raise Manhattan via mutant destruction and force a war between mutants and humanity, whereas in Uncanny X-Men, fear and hatred of evil mutants is at a peak all over 
over, particularly seen from children in Scotland in the wake of the Juggernauts battle with an X-Men squad a few issues prior. Ironically, of course, Juggernaut's not actually even a mutant. Both X-Factor and the X-Men get to enact in Xavier's dream for the cameras, though letting Iceman's mantra in the pages of X-Factor, know us by our deeds, gain more traction, right? The world actually gets to see mutant kind, the good mutants in this case, you know, as the comics would have us believe, by their deeds. I do think it's interesting to consider the status of mutant heroes as celebrities in the Marvel Universe, with teams generally operating in the shadows and mutants remaining feared, in part due to the mystery and ignorance around them. Whereas the Avengers and the Fantastic Four have press conferences, you know, and they talk to the people and they get press, mutant kind is more or less just talked about, with a Professor X debate against Boulevard Trask coming, you know, early in Uncanny X-Men as an expert on mutant rights rather than out as a mutant himself. By the end of X-Factor in particular, the turn from feared and hated swings so far that Cyclops and Jean are literally parading in a police car with their acts of selfless defense against the forces of Apocalypse being cheered. There's no real pretending that suddenly bigotry against mutants is at an end, but there is some actual movement towards an alliance being possible, at least having some hope. While all this is happening, we cut occasionally to the pocket reality the adversary has set up for Storm and Forge, the star-crossed romantic couple that Claremont and company have built up over the course of many X-Men issues now, most notably Life Death with artist Barry Windsor Smith. We're at a point in X-Men history where Forge built a weapon that could remove mutants' abilities, and while that gun was intended for use on Rogue, the blast hit Storm, leaving her without her powers for literal years in the X-Men universe. So not only do they have sort of this tense romance that goes back and forth, but we also have a situation situation where Storm has a lot of good reason <laughs> to mistrust Forge because that weapon he knew it was used he didn't know design it you know intentionally to be used on Storm but then he kind of lied about it a little bit back in life death so they have a, a somewhat complicated relationship even though the two are very clearly very close. Forge and Storm do have the chance to stay in this pocket reality and enjoy their peace and begin a world anew. Although how real that offer is when given by the adversary, I, I'd say that remains up for debate. It's always been an interesting what-if in X-Men history for me, though, to consider what this world would look like if Storm and Forge opted for option B and became essentially Adam and Eve for a new mutant world. I feel like this is a flashback or a timeline or something that you could, you could revisit with some interesting ideas. Of course, it's not meant to be in the pages of Fall of the Mutants as Forge invents a way for them to travel back, and importantly, for Storm to regain her powers, finally, in the fight against the adversary, aiding the X-Men who also more or less knowingly sacrifice their own lives in order to achieve the same end result and stop the adversary's threat. Again, the revolution is televised, quite literally, NPR uh, reporter Neil, forgetting the last name, but a friend of Chris Claremont's actual NPR reporter is on location with uh, the X-Men as they go into this tower and, and have to fight off the adversaries. Uh, you know, forces, and again, like, this is all aired and streamed, you know, they live stream this thing, like, everybody saw it, okay, so the X-Men get a lot of press that way. The other, the third arc that I'm going to talk about probably the least here is New Mutants 59 to 61, the creative unit is Louis Simonson, Brett Blevins, Terry Austin, Tom Orzakowski, Glennis Oliver, and Ann DeSanti editing, and uh, the one major call out, I think, just artistically, is we've moved, we're out of the Chris Claremont era writing X-Men, right, he hands over the series to Louis Simonson, who's a longtime editor, Editor and and major contributor to the X line, writing uh, X Factor here as well. And we have Brett Blevins joining on art now, and his new mutants look very very young. I think they look more like a team of of children, perhaps, or of young teens than they really ever have. You know, I think even the Sinkevich era, just there's there's such a a depth and grit to that that they can look a little bit older. Whereas here, I think you know there's more cartoonishness definitely to the animals and these hybrid creatures that make sense. But the characters look a lot younger too. So the new mutants here are facing off against the 
animator. Uh, it's basically a Dr. Moreau type character who creates these animal-human-ish hybrids with some sentience. Uh, most importantly, he's working at the behest of Cameron Hodge and the Wright, who are a, a very scary terrorist organization, right? That is basically expressly designed on their hatred of mutants. Of course, this this unit is where we see like Nanny and Orphan Maker come from, or we see Nanny come from in the pages of the Dawn of X. And of course, Cameron Hodge is a longtime villain who's going to have who has had a role to play in X Factor and will have a role in upcoming X-Men events as well. But here we see them, you know, just open fire on these children, new mutants again, simply because they're mutants. So the real danger that the animator and, and the right, you know, inflict here is Doug Ramsey jumps in front of a bullet to save Rain, shot by the animator. This is actually a fairly big lasting death for mutants and, and the new mutants in particular, as Doug would kind of stay dead until the 90s Phalanx Covenant and really stay dead until the 2000s Necrotia event. Like, this has a lasting impact for them. And Doug's death, too, like, it really sets off Ileana Rasputin's transformation to the Dark Child, sending animator and the mutant-hating right to limbo as punishment for this demonic everlasting torture for killing one of their own, for killing Doug. And I mean, you know, for all of their inexperience, this is the first, I believe, new mutant to actually die, Doug Ramsey. You know, and there's, it's kind of like he's the most obvious new mutant you could do this to because again his power is understanding language they talk so much about him not being prepared for battle and here you know he gets to do something heroic but he still falls right and that's that's why this is the fall of the mutants the new mutants do finally return to the x-mansion after this fact and magne this is the era of magneto as the headmaster he's constantly losing the kids <laughs> he's like a very uh lax headmaster not necessarily for lack of caring you know he actually does take it seriously i think in helping these kids but he's constantly losing them things are constantly going wrong and here he's furious that they went off on this mission and doug got killed you know and he's the one who's going to have to call doug's parents and tell him what happened so it's been in the works but this is really the moment when magneto loses the new mutants completely and it sets him on a path returning to darkness despite his seemingly quite earnest intentions to fulfill his promises to charles xavier back in uncanny x-men number 200 okay so we're not there yet but like this is definitely and i, I would consider too when you think about like moira's timelines and her notes and her journals about losing magneto this is definitely an era i think in the death of doug ramsey where that really kind of sinks in and begins to happen in earnest. One of the biggest legacies of Fall of the Mutants, especially in retrospect, is the use of resurrection by Lady Roma, more or less instantaneously undoing the actual death of the X-Men and reviving them with the choice to transport to any other world, any era, any reality. This is a really big opening, and this could always be revisited, I feel like, because although the mutants say here, like, oh, just put us back, but put us in Australia, what if there's more to this conversation, or could there have been more to this conversation where there were tweaks to the reality or there were tweaks to the world you know could they have been placed somewhere where things are slightly different could this be an opportunity and an out for them if they need to be placed in a new reality because things are going wrong and Moira and Professor X's plans are going wrong for them in the current reality I find that uh, quite fascinating just having that opportunity or was it a one-time deal I guess if it was why like what what exactly explains that you know and all this in, in the moment it's setting up the era to come of uncanny x-men which is the australian x-men is the down under they are literally going to be transported to australia and the world and really all of their allies are going to believe that the x-men are dead so it's kind of this under discussed uh era of x-men again like it's going to go from 88 really through 
to like Inferno, you know, which is the big event coming up next, where everyone thinks the X-Men are dead and they're just kind of doing their thing down under, a new beginning down under as the issue teases. And uh, their comics well worth reading. If you're if you're an X-Men fan and you haven't done, you know, I think I think it's best if you're doing like the full Claremont binge from 76 through to today, but obviously that's a ton of comics, <laughs> you know? But it's it's interesting. If you haven't read before, if it's been a while. There are a handful of tie-ins to the Fall of the Mutants events. Um, few of them are essential, but generally they're actually pretty good. Uh, a handful like the Anasanti, John Romita Jr., Daredevil, or Peter David, Tom McFarlane, Incredible Hulk are part of worthwhile runs from Marvel during the era that are worth checking out in their own in their own right as well. So, you know, as events go, Fall of the Mutants functions pretty well in the sense that it's not it's not like other events. There's not a deliberate um, kind of forced, not forced, but there's not a deliberate continuity that you really need to follow. You know, you can more or less bounce around. I do have a reading order that does specify, you know, where that continuity is going to fit, which you can find on Comic Book Herald, and I'll link to in the show notes if you are so inclined. But generally speaking, you can read like the various X chapters in chunks and it reads pretty successfully so let me know what you think what do you think of all the mutants uh did you enjoy this event do you think it's kind of a miss it's an interesting era of x-men because you know this late 80s period where we're kind of everything is building to inferno which is this major event that happens and they're trying some weird and wild stuff in ways that i think uh, often gets overlooked in the present day so let me know in the comments what you think about the event what you think about connections to the future or any of the mini theories i posited here in the meantime thanks to everybody who supports comic book herald over at patreon.com slash comic book herald helps me out an awful lot thanks in particular to our mysterious benefactors tier ron paul kirkley jesse w professor pride steve brennan cole weathers martin lopez chris isidro brent bowser professor x3769 and pd appleseed thank you all for your support Thanks, everybody. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com, at comicbookherald, pretty much anywhere on social. Look for the best comics ever in My Marvelous Year podcast for more from me. Again, with the My Marvelous Year podcast, we are doing a reading club from Marvel 1961 through to present day. We more or less just covered Fall of the Mutants in the reading club. So, like, if you want to read these classic X-Men stories with us and, and more from the Marvel Universe, come check out My Marvelous Year. It's a great way to explore Marvel comics without losing your mind <laughs> trying to read absolutely everything so thanks everybody for listening and as always enjoy the comics